So Lisa, is it too soon to call uh, the honorable Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, the notorious KBJ? Like, like, can we give her her own name? I think so. I don't think it's too soon. Uh, (laughs) Well, look, we need to get into the historic confirmation of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And, you know, some of the interesting things that I've been seeing pop up about her and her family um, as she's about to be sworn into the highest court of the land. So maybe we should get into some of the details around her, her family and what the court of public opinion thinks about them and and what the next steps look like with their family on the bench. Yeah, I agree. Let's do it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Feisty Triathlon is proudly partnered with TryHard. TryHard is the only company offering pre and post swim solutions to provide comprehensive protection for your hair and skin. Its products include swimmer's shampoo, pre and post swim conditioner, pre and post swim lotion, and more. All products are made with clean formula and are parabens free, SLS free, alcohol free, cruelty free, vegan, and non-GMO. And to boot, bottles are made with 80% recycled plastic. So why don't you swim without compromising your skin and hair? Unfazed listeners get 15% off all TryHard products by going to tryhard.co and using the code FEISTY15. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. Their main focus, the iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. And Lisa, I did this race in 2016. And I have to say, it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim. But I hear, unlike 2016, this year, they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world. So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today. So Lisa, let me tell you, my mother, Deborah Farmer Payne, is always on it when it comes to the news, right? I had just dropped the boys off at school and I was excitedly talking to my mom as I do most mornings about what's going on in the news and so forth. And I said, I am so excited about Katanji. I'm talking to her about her family and everything and her bio and you know what she's done in her career and also that her husband is a director of surgery at Georgetown, I believe. And I'm thinking in my mind, to be as transparent as possible about my bias, I'm thinking, oh, snap, we got the Black power couple going on here. We got a judge on the highest court of the land, and we got a brother that's a surgeon, Georgetown. 
I can't do nothing with them, right? And my mom said, oh, you haven't seen the family pictures. He's white. And I'm like, say what? <laughs> yeah, Katanji's husband is white. And I'm like, oh, well, cool, whatever. I was hyped for a minute, but I'm still hyped. I'm really excited. But that just shows how my own bias played into things. And yeah, yeah. later on, you know, after I did a little bit of research, I'm thinking to myself, how must he feel as he's so proud of his wife going to this next level? This is incredible just as a bystander, right? Yeah. And, you know, the um, hearings were powerful because I, you know, he was visibly emotional. So that's a really neat um, Mm -hmm. example to set for young men and boys in terms of a very successful uh, male crying, right? And being so proud of Mm -hmm. his partner and her accomplishments and not at all being threatened by it. So I think that that is a pretty um, important moment. However, how many young men and boys were watching that is unclear. (laughs) So, yeah, but... Mm -hmm. uh, I know bias bias comes up in mysterious ways, right? Like we we think we we don't have it and boom, there it is. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, you know, I think, you know, it begs the question of, you know, going back to your point around, you know, future potential partners of high-performing women, especially uh, women of color in particular, you know, there's a proximity that's in place where, no, they can't, fully understand what it means to be the first Black woman to do anything, Um, but being close enough to see and see the process. I mean, I don't know how long they've been married, but obviously they've been together long enough, I believe, since their college days where he has witnessed this climb up this ladder and witnessed it firsthand and has been able to see both the highs and the lows of her career journey, professional journey, family journey, and so forth. You know, I think he deserves a little credit, don't you think, for, you know, being there in support of her, even as he knows he can't fully 100% understand her experience, right? And and the shared experience uh, that no one else can really replace. Right. And, you know, credit, yes. And also, I would hope that it's an expectation, right? You're in a multiracial relationship um, and you're the partner that doesn't experience racial oppression, Mm-hmm. either at all or to the same extent, you know, I would hope that you, you are empathetic and you don't gaslight your partner. And, and I, I, I'm curious how much he's learned, you know, how quote unquote woke was he when he entered the relationship and then over time, because I'm sure her experience on the Supreme court um, confirmation hearings was not the first time that she has experienced resistance um, individually and systemically uh, as she has kind of made her way through the legal field and into judgeships. So Mm. how was it eye-opening for him? You know, was he humbled? I wonder. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, uh, judge gives him his, his due credit saying that you know, he's been the best husband, father, and friend she could ever imagine. And so I feel like you're right that the role itself comes with some expectations of uh, maybe some of the deepest allyship that one could have, you know, in this, because you're having to be an ally on so many different levels. And 
you know, even as I'm wondering too, how are they raising their daughters to perceive themselves? Because, you know, there's certain generations where, you know, I think this stems from what, um, the the policies that we all know about here in the United States, the the one drop rule of any person having one drop of black blood in them or African blood in them is considered a black person. You know, there's some biracial or multiracial families that raise their resulting children to consider themselves black or fully black or partially black. And so what does that mean? Like, I remember hearing that story first where Halle Berry, the actress, her mother is white, but her mother, knowing how society would treat her, groomed her to continue to own a fully 100% Black identity, even as she has a white mother. And so I'm wondering, too, you know, Dr. Jackson has to navigate the allyship of his extremely high-profile, high-performing spouse and also daughters that are biracial that will have to deal with their own issues. And I would suggest that depending on how they choose to define themselves and has and how society will define them, they're going to navigate that differently. You know, we, we know that biracial people in this country struggle to find a full sense of belonging in any community because it seems as if they're not enough of anything to be at any group, right? And so I'm just, I'm feeling like the level of necessary and required allyship from individuals like Dr. Jackson has to be heightened. I mean, to another complete level, you know? Yeah. He's got a lot to navigate. He does. And I, I wonder what that threshold looks like in terms of moving beyond the my blank is black or oh, Latinx wow. or indigenous. And so I get it, you know, um, that kind of, uh, I have a black friend, so I understand oppression. Um, Right, narrative right. that often flips from white people's mouths um or you know well I am married to a woman so I totally understand what it's like to live as a woman you know those kinds of things and so uh, that's yeah. fairly superficial allyship and it seems like at least obs- from an observation you know through the television which you know I suppose is quite thin in terms of knowing them um that he is um, a mm. lot more adept at understanding and that depth of allyship that you articulated seems to be there. And it makes me yeah. also think of um, Vice President Kamala Harris's husband, also a white man, um, and mm-hmm. what his journey has been in terms of his development and how he supports um, the vice president you know, as she navigates pretty kind of like shark infested waters of being a woman of color in the second highest role in the country. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, how far apart all the identities are. So, you know, Lisa, let me nerd out for just a minute, but you know how we think about, you know, the social identity wheel and all the different identities that land there for one person, you know, even, uh, you know, even Judge Jackson mentioned in one of her previous um, lecture, she talked about both of their backgrounds and how they were extremely different. And she said that um, Dr. Jackson, her spouse, is a twin, um, but he and his twin brother are sixth generation graduates of Harvard College, right? So you're coming from, you're, you're white, you're male, you might as well say you're decently affluent, you're incredibly highly educated, your entire family. And then you have 
Judge Jackson, who uh, second generation to go to college, to go to any type of college, not just Harvard College, and of course, knowing that her slaves, her, her ancestors were enslaved, you can't not, you, you can't unhear that, you can't unsee that, and how far those experiences are, yet they brought it close together in order to create a family. And I would suggest Kamala and Doug have done the same with multiple identity groups with Doug uh, having a Jewish background, Kamala having a number of different backgrounds, including including an Asian background as well, you know, braiding all of that together, you know, you can say that you understand and experience to an extent, but it's still closer than anyone else who says, oh, I got an Asian friend. I got a white friend. I got a black friend. I got a this friend and that friend. Mm -hmm. It's like you you can't tokenize it, right? You could have, but you can choose not to. And I feel like Doug Imhoff and uh, Dr. Jackson are having to go beyond tokenizing. Oh, well, my wife is black, so fill in the blank. They have to go beyond tokenizing. And I think we tokenize even our closest friends because they're close, right? It's, it's easy to say, Oh, my college roommate was black. So I know what it's all about. No, you don't. You don't. And you may never. Um, But it's interesting how that tokenizing could happen based on proximity, but you have to be wise enough not to go there. Yeah. um, And it's going to be a journey, right? Given what you outlined about Mm. um, Katanji Brown Jackson's husband's background, that's, yeah, that's generationally privileged um it's interesting because it made me think of a, another podcast code switch that I'm always talking about <laughs> on NPRs this was a long time ago now but um one of the um presenters talked about how they felt that in a biracial relationship where one of the partners is white that because of generational wealth and privilege, that that individual should take on a higher percentage of the financial and economic responsibilities of the couple. Um, It was a longer conversation, right? And I just thought that was really an interesting perspective, particularly, particularly if we slice in issues around gender, right, where Mm. it's in a heterosexual relationship historically where women have been viewed as property and um, men um, have been considered the primary breadwinner and all of those pieces. So then what does it mean in the, the relationships we've just identified where the male partner is white and mm-hmm. so have that financial generational history of wealth. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like it's just it's it's very complicated. And so your point about wisdom, I think, yeah. is yeah. really an important one because you can't roll into a relationship, particularly one where the person is of a different racial background to you, and do so lightly, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think you can go into it lightly. And again, you know, for, for those naysayers that may say, oh, well, if you get into a serious relationship, it shouldn't matter what the backgrounds are. You shouldn't go into it flippantly anyway. 
(laughs) This feels like an all relationships matter conversation. And that's not where we're going. Lisa and I are probably never going in that direction. Um, But it, it does mean that your relationship will be heavy for different reasons than just being in an in-depth relationship with someone. It's different for certain reasons that you shouldn't have to navigate, but now you do on top of the difficulty of relationship in general, right? So I'm thinking of my friends who, you know, they are they are in a same-sex marriage and one is uh, identifies as a white male, Jewish background, married to an African-American male from the South. You can imagine there's lots of issues going on there for other people, not for them because they love each other. But again, having to deal with self-identity as well as the perception of the world and how much of that you choose to manage or not, especially when you're living in the deep South. Hello, there's a whole lot going on there. Um, and and I would surmise there there's a lot going on with a lot of um, multiracial relationships that also have additional layers that need to be added on, whether it's religious difference or, you know, ethnic differences, um, citizenship differences. There's so many things to layer on, but when you already come out of the gate from the basis of just not looking like each other, right? Like that was one of the things that I said very early on when, when um, my boys were born, my oldest is 11 and my youngest is seven. But when Trey, my oldest, first went to daycare, and matter of fact, Lisa, we still call it the Cadillac daycare because this was not the El Cheapo daycare, okay? This was the, you know, branded, very expensive, more than a mortgage daycare. And we're looking around the classroom thinking in maybe one or two years, Trey and his age group, many in his age group, may be the only racial group that's readily identifiable that they're not racially ambiguous. Like you can look at both of my sons and say they are unequivocally black, right? Right. Right. They have, we have tons of family, friends, loved ones, classmates who you cannot definitively say that about. I love that personally, but that's what comes from this, uh, the intermingling of relationship and then how do you manage it? How do you manage it when your family doesn't look like each other? Yeah. What does that mean? Because people judge that. And I'm not saying that's right or fair, but it's it's true. Yeah. And then with, um, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris and soon to be Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, they're in the spotlight. Right. And they are two women of color that historically would not have been in the spotlight. Like thinking traditionally, it's likely yes. that's been there husband right given their identity in the spotlight so that's like a real um twist of kind of racial hierarchies if you will um Uh in the the united states at least and so that adds some additional pressure perhaps to the white men in the relationship not that they shouldn't have to manage pressure but there's all these like stereotypes and structures and norms Mm. that might be harmful, right? In terms of mm-hmm. their sense of self and identity. And so that's probably pretty darn tiring for both people in those couple in those couples, mm-hmm. given all yeah. the that are likely going to be thrown at them from the culture about where they fit and how they should act. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I remember I remember when we were still getting used to our U.S. language around uh, Doug Imhoff. It's like, okay, we all have to get our mouths very used to no longer saying first lady or second lady and saying um, he's the first second gentleman, right? And getting used to even that language was tough for U.S. culture. And so, yeah, there's a lot of structures that have held in place not having people like soon to be Justice Jackson and uh, Vice President Harris. We we have the structure in place, which makes it difficult um, for many of us to, you know, rename, like how many times have people stumbled over saying Madam Vice President? Because we're so used to saying Mr. Vice President, right? So, yeah. you know, even yeah. those structures have really been challenging for people, um, but Lisa, we before we we wrap up, I think we should go down the data because you know we are data people. Okay, we we have to at least yeah. give them the numbers okay. on things um, when it comes to future Justice Jackson. Um, you know, it's profound. You know, we have to look at what the data shows us. I mean, it it stands alone by itself that what over two hundred and thirty years have passed, and in those two hundred and thirty years, one hundred and fifteen justices. Um, not even all of them have been confirmed because the confirmation process wasn't even happening in the beginning. Um, so 115 justices out of those 108 of them were white men. Two of them were men of color. Five of them were women. One of them was uh, a woman of color. Um, and so, you know, excuse me, the second woman of color is now uh, soon to be Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. And so, you know, look at all these different, uh, the lack of demographics that yeah. have happened here. Yeah. Um, thank goodness for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who also adds the the added um, understanding of the Jewish culture and so forth. But, you know, again, for the most part, we have not had a whole lot of anything other than white men. Um, and so with that, you know, it's a time of celebration, also acknowledging that this is jostling everyone's understanding of identity. Um, I, I remember, Lisa, I don't know if you saw a lot of this, but I remember hearing a lot of uh, folks that I really respect in the DEI space saying, we're thrilled about Katanji's confirmation, but we're also sickened by the fact that we had to focus so much on uh, the lack of fairness and sideswiping in the confirmation yeah. process that we yeah. didn't really get to focus on our laundry list of credentials. So the process hijacked all of her experience and what mm -hmm. she brings to the bench in and of itself. Like even that we have to process and how her spouse had to sit there and witness the bullshit. That's what gets me. Like when cameras are in your face, I have no poker face, y'all. My face, if I were Dr. Jackson, would have been jacked up the entire time because there were very few times where a politician other than, than Cory Booker and a couple others had anything remotely um, important or prideful to say about this whole thing. I'm like, oh, y'all yeah. suck. Um, did you get to watch any of it, Lisa? Yeah, I did. It was a circus. And, you know, I wanted to throw things at the television, which isn't super helpful. But um, you're right. Like as the par the partner, um, the cameras are on you, too. Right. And it must be yes. pretty torturous to see such ridiculousness. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it was so blatantly racially motivated and politically motivated. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's humiliating. And I think, you know, Lisa Mikowski, who's a Republican senator from Alaska, she quoted why she was voting for her because um, it's like in opposition to this, um, the way that the confirmation hearing has just become more and more partisan over time. And, you know, historically, you would have certainly some individuals of the other party vote against a nomination, but by and large, you would get mm. you know, 20 or 30 people from the other party that would vote. And now you just don't see that at all. Um, mm-hmm. she, mm-hmm. So she had acknowledged that um, piece. Yeah. Um, she didn't acknowledge the racialized nature of the hearing per se, but right. um, yeah, I mean, I just, the, the pressure, it's like a pressure cooker, right? Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I agree. I do want to mention we missed Elena Kagan, who is the second Jewish woman on the court. Oh, okay. That's important to know. I wasn't aware of that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Even even when you think about that, so 115 justices and there's only Mm. two two members of Judaism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Right. Ridiculous too. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So true. That's good to know. Well, you know, I I think, you know, as we kind of circle back, because y'all know that we always try to tie things to endurance sport, um, is that, you know, we've kind of focused on Dr. Jackson and, uh, of course, Doug Imhoff and, you know, those who play kind of a uh, ally to the oppression. You know, we I've seen a number of articles listed as secondhand oppression where, no, they may not have both feet in it. Um, as, but they are as empathetic as they can possibly be without sharing those identity groups. Um, and also I would suggest without tokenizing either. Um, and I feel like, you know, in some ways we need to be very cognizant of this in the endurance sport community, because, you know, here's the thing, Lisa, is that oftentimes people check out of allyship because they feel like if they can't do it perfectly, they'd rather not do it at all. And so we see, you know, the perfectionism of allyship where people are silent. They want to, they don't want to do anything. They don't want to say anything. They don't want to be supportive, et cetera. What I would suggest is I think all of us have, you know, that buddy that we love to see in our tri club or that person that is, that may not share our identity, but they're also an endurance sport that we see on a regular basis. You probably have no idea some of the challenges that those individuals have, even as they train uh, and or race make sure that you're touching base with them and continuing to number one, support them, even when you don't see it, but especially when you do see the foolishness pop off, what are you doing to be supportive of those individuals? Because it's probably happening all around you and you don't even think about it. Um, Lisa, I'm remembering one time, a real quick story as we um, were leaving our open water swim, which is um, in a relatively affluent area of town that's predominantly white and, you know, three black women and one white woman are walking back from the water to our cars and a white gentleman kind of looks at us really weird and says, you know, what are y'all doing down here? Now, mind you, we come every Sunday and have been coming for years, but, you know, questioning why we're here and questioning why would we go out there and swim in that water? by ourselves. And he's looking directly at the three of us as black women, but never once even glances at the white woman in our group. And the white woman says, oh, hey, Bob. Now, I don't know that that's his name or not, but she calls the person by name because they knew each other or were at least associates. Oh, hey, Bob, you know, these are these are my buddies. We come swim down here almost every Sunday. And so she kind of calls out the foolishness 
without the three of us having to say anything. And I know that sounds really small, but it was a microaggression that happened in the moment that we deal with all the time, number one. Um, But secondly, this person had an opportunity to witness secondhand oppression and to interrupt it at the very same time, may not have done it perfectly, but still um, did not shy away from that particular situation. How many of us are just like, okay, let's just swim, bike, run, go to the house and, and we're done and that's it. And our entire endurance lives don't have anything to do with oppression. And I would strongly suggest to the contrary. You may think you're not encountering secondhand oppression, but I guarantee you it's around you much more than you would have ever imagined. It's just a matter of being aware and cognizant of it, Lisa. Yeah. And I don't think you need to be in a romantic or intimate relationship with someone who is different from you to have that level of empathy. Right. I mean, we're talking about examples of um, bi multiracial couples in the Mm -hmm. spotlight and Mm -hmm speculating as to what that might mean or have taught the white people in that scenario. But I think that level of intimacy isn't required, right, for white right. people or for men to interrupt those microaggressions or to grow and learn um, and be empathetic to mm-hmm. the experiences of people who are marginalized in sport. Like you just don't need that. And I think some white people, some That's men right. probably shy away because they feel, well, I don't really know that person very well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and in mm-hmm. some cases, this is where it's like an it depends situation, right? In some cases, you rolling in and interfering if you don't really know the person very well could be problematic, but, mm. um, you know, mm-hmm. it's difficult for us to probably like detail every single scenario where that might be the case. You have to kind of use your best judgment, I think, but use your judgment, right? Don't ignore mm. it. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Lisa, don't we have a hell yeah and a hell no nah for today? We sure do. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. All right. Well, I will uh, pop in with the hell yeah that I'm always excited about. Um, let me be clear. This one is an interesting one, Lisa, because we've we've mentioned two things in the past. We've mentioned Don Staley in the past, and we've also mentioned female coaches being criticized for attire, right? We've, we've mentioned yeah. both of those. Yeah. So I, I almost want to mention this as a more of a hell yeah, with a little bit of hell, um, is that Dawn Staley, we are thrilled um, that the Gamecocks once again uh, went to another championship. So uh, two-time NCAA Division I tournament champ. 2017 and 2022. Anyone who's very familiar with Dawn Staley's background as a player and as a coach know that she is highly decorated. Um, You know, six-time WNBA All-Star, of course, Naismith College Player of the Year twice in 91 and 92, back-to-back, you know, on and on and on with her uh, resume. Of course, AP National Coach of the Year, five-time SEC coach of the year. I mean, just on and on and on. And so we're thrilled for Coach Staley and her team in regards to uh, their recent championship. And (laughs) let me tell you what's very cool about Dawn Staley too, is that a lot of people uh, on social media, especially on Twitter, were posting uh, Dawn as she was coaching and noting her attire and (laughs) what she wore at the game. 
she wore a green Louis Vuitton varsity jacket, which let me just say, I'm usually not impressed with attire, but this jacket is slamming. And the Louis Vuitton jacket, based on the website, <laughs> a jacket valued at 4850 bucks, along with the matching boots, Lisa, for $1,100, right? Now, let me just be clear. Dawn Staley can do what she, whatever she wants to do, okay? She can do what she wants to do at any time, at any place. And she gets even more uh, credibility here because, you know, she keeps heading to the championship. So given that, I thought it was so uh, interesting that they highlighted not only the win, but also her attire that night. So I don't know if everyone's just going to run out and go get a $4,800 jacket off the Louis Vuitton website right now. But um, Mm -hmm. I think she's cool as an individual. She does what she wants to do. Um, She has that uh, type A strong personality that clearly shows um, why she's a coach. Um, And we're just really proud of Dawn Staley continuing to lead um, and leading amongst all coaches, not just from one particular gender. So fantastic for you, Dawn Staley. Yeah, and I guess shame on you for people who are commenting on her outfit because you absolutely would not have done that for a dude. Um, I don't think they talked about Coach K's anything, okay? <laughs> nope, nada. So, okay, so that's a mostly hell, yeah, with a little sliver of a hell no. And now the full on hell no is um, it came to our attention that a teacher, music teacher in Kentucky at a t- um, had uh, written outside uh, their classroom or in their classroom a comment um, saying, you are free to be yourself with me, you matter. Um, And I guess this comment posted in his classroom or outside of their classroom was controversial. And allegedly he has received threats of violence and it caused quite the ruckus among parents that felt that it was inappropriate for this teacher to share um, such a message uh, combined with apparently having discussions that were outside of the music curriculum in the class. And so he has since re- resigned. He hasn't made any public announcements yet, as I understand. But so it's a developing story. So certainly things might change. But it sounds like the school board um, is in support of his resignation Um, feeling that it is inappropriate for any teacher to um, deviate from the written curriculum that is designated for that day. But as we all know, in reality, teachers are not usually following curriculum by the letter because of student questions or other issues that might be coming up in the classroom that necessitate being um, addressed. And, you know, wanting to encourage students and help them feel valued no matter their identities is you know an integral Mm -hmm. central part of being a teacher and so the fact Mm -hmm. that he he needs to resign and we don't know whether that was a voluntary resignation or whether he was pressured um that Mm -hmm. is unclear at this point but the fact that we're seeing these issues arising more and more frequently in education with a number of educators Um, who are looking to create inclusive classrooms, losing their opportunity to do so because of backlash is extremely troubling. So big old hell nah there. And, And Lisa, just, you know, to your point, 
usually it's so interesting to me that the backlash is quite a bit more shameful than that which they're protesting. You know, I, I don't see why anyone should be threatened with anything uh, because of their point of view. Um, it's just a damn shame. I, I usually get so frustrated with the backlash um, because, you know, here we go saying, oh, we don't want you teaching certain topics to our kids, but we're willing to threaten you, your livelihood. Who knows if this teacher had a, a family or, you know, children, whatnot, other people to consider. And now they have to live in a little bit of fear because of people not agreeing um, with them teaching. So, yeah, this this is disheartening. Huge hell nah. Mm-hmm yet we continue to see it right yes and for whatever reason i've just remembered another hell nah so this is hell nah b which Mm -hmm. is the um trans exclusive sports bills are still rolling out of um, legislation across the country and i believe oklahoma and alabama were the most recent states to pass really restrictive laws related to trans children's participation in youth sports and also their ability to access medical care and determine how they would like to move forward in terms of their gender identity. I think in one of those states, it was perhaps made a felony for um, a a minor to go through surgery or something. I'm not remembering exactly, but that was a pretty big issue in 2021 and it has continued strong into 2022. So please be mindful, please advocate and pay attention to the news so that you can make sure you know what's happening and push back because we need to make endurance sport more trans inclusive, not less. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. And use the code FEISTY for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash FEISTY. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>